Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode is on the subject of infectious disease, and I'll leave it up to you to figure out why. The good news is that podcasts can be listened to anywhere, including while laying in bed. So we hope you're able to enjoy this, whatever your own personal health situation might be. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. Okay. This article comes to us from Discover Magazine, and it is titled, Typhoid Mary was a real asymptomatic carrier who caused multiple outbreaks. Oh, yeah. Too soon. (laughs) Both too long ago and too soon. Both both the ones, in my opinion. So, when the Warren family was hit by typhoid fever at a summer countryside retreat in 1906, there's no obvious explanation. The infection usually spread through food or water, which was contaminated by salmonella, so it was largely associated with poor inner-city areas where sanitation Mm -hmm. was overlooked. One paper at the time even called it a disease of dirt, poverty, and national carelessness. Wow. Yeah. So the Warren family hires this investigator named George Soper, and the drinking water in Oyster Bay was fine, so Soper turns his attention towards the 37-year-old Irish cook, Mary Mallon, who had since left the household. He found that of the last eight families that had hired Malin as a cook and consumed her popular and very salmonella-friendly dish, peaches with ice cream, uh, (laughs) seven of those families had contracted typhoid fever. So that was enough evidence for authorities to just go and track her down in person. So just like some Americans in 2020 that have resisted the recommendations to wear masks and socially distance, Malin was also reluctant to accept medical advice and initially chased Soper out of her Park Avenue workplace with a carving fork when he asked for blood, urine, and feces samples. So when Soper notified the New York Public Health Department, Malin actually evaded arrest for five hours until she was caught. And then the physician, Sarah Josephine Baker actually had to sit on her in the ambulance to prevent her escape. So she was not having it at all. But did they actually have measures of like, I mean, there wasn't any way to say, okay, you can still work as a cook, but you have to put on a mask or gloves or anything. Like it was basically a death sentence for her in the sense that if she couldn't work anywhere, you know, they were just consigning her to living in a room by herself forever. I mean, she wasn't able. Destitution, poverty and death. Yeah. Yeah. So after she tested positive for typhoid, she was forcibly moved to a quarantine facility on North Brother Island. And she stayed there for about three years. But a new city health commissioner did help release her on the condition that she never work as a cook again. Right. But she did. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So (laughs) Baker tracked her down five years later, where he found that she was working under an alias in the kitchen of Sloan Maternity Hospital, which was in the midst of a typhoid outbreak. Oh, And that's what I lose my sympathy for, because it's like, okay, you got to work, but you don't have to work in a neonatal hospital. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit in her defense that the article goes into, like, they're asking, why did she keep cooking? And she was a female Irish immigrant, and it was probably the best paying job available for her. And she felt fine the entire time. She showed no symptoms. And there was also actually no precedent for this ever before. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, I can imagine being literally the first person as germ theory is still in its infancy. Like, it wasn't even a common practice for cooks to wash their hands yet. Uh, However... 
Malin was actually very much like our modern day certain citizens of the U.S. who did not trust suggestions for medical professionals at all. Uh, they were telling her that her gallbladder was the infection center and should be removed, but unfortunately, it was a life-endangering surgery at the time. Right. So mm. her refusal ensured that she would actually spend the next 23 years on North Brother Island as well. So they just locked her up eventually because she wouldn't stop working. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. She was arrested again, and that's when the image of Typhoid Mary was solidified in the media. The New York Tribune referred to her as an agent of death in 1918, Yikes. and there are ghoulish cartoons showing her cracking skulls into oh. a bowl <laughs> instead of eggs. Yeah. So this was not a particularly kind time in history t when it came to attitudes towards Irish immigrants either, right? Yeah, no, abs absolutely not. And part of this is probably because of her class and being yeah. an immigrant and also just being the first asymptomatic carrier on record. But at the same time, she could have just been easily scapegoated as this unmarried working class immigrant without a family, because as far as they knew back then, no one else was quarantined against their will in the same way that she was. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's kind of sad because she had no idea what she was actually being blamed for. And the public at large had no understanding of asymptomatic carriers, and she didn't Ugh. she couldn't Google it or anything. And right. there's a quote she, as she told a reporter, uh, I never had typhoid in my life and have always been healthy. Why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion? I mean, that sounds very timely. Good Lord. Yeah. Even towards the end, apparently Typhoid Mary just had no real context for how significant her case was in medical history at large. Right. Well, she didn't even believe it. She's like, yeah. you people are just locking me up for no reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which just goes to show you how complex and... Difficult it is when you're dealing with something that doesn't have uh, immediate visceral effects, we could mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. Uh, this next link comes from The Guardian by Allison Flood. It's titled, Isaac Newton Proposed Curing Plague with Toad Vomit, Unseen Paper Show. <laughs> I don't know why they're unseen. I mean, why wouldn't he want to just put that out in the world and be super proud of it? Basically, these are two pages uh, that had not been published, and it's his notes on Jan Baptiste van Helmont's 1667 book on plague, De Pest. <laughs> these are going to be auctioned online by Bonhams this week. The notes include the case of a man who touched, quote, pestilent papers, immediately felt a pain like a pricking needle, and developed a pestilent ulcer in the forefinger and died in two days. Whoa. So his observation was places infected with the plague are to be avoided. Yeah. Pretty sensible, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but less sensible were some of Newton's potential cures, which were recorded as being unlikely to be taken up today. He writes that, quote, the best is a toad suspended by the legs in a chimney for three days, which at last vomited up earth with various insects in it onto a dish of yellow wax, combining powdered toad with the excretions and serum made into lozenges and worn about the affected area, uh. drove away the contagion and drew out the poison. Mm. Well, now, so he's saying it worked. I mean, he's not just like, I tested it with an upside down frog in my chimney. I actually put it on somebody with the plague. That was a direct quote from wow. his notes. So yeah. it's a little difficult to kind of infer whether this was actually something he had done or was just putting forth as a potential mm -hmm. cure. Um, it does know that it's a potential cure. But... Well, so is everything. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. I mean, you got to come up with some wild stuff before actually testing it. And mm -hmm. it's just the article notes, it's unlikely these are going to be tested now. But 
<laughs> you know, who knows? We'll, we'll go for anything yeah. if we care for some plague that we got going on right now, right? Mm-hmm. So the papers had never been previously included in any of his collected works, which is what makes them kind of rare and getting attention on the auction block right now. When Isaac died in, I'm sorry, Sir Isaac Newton, when he died in 1727. <laughs> You're not on first name, huge... first name basis? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel like I've gotten to know him a lot better after right. his uh, proposal on toad vomit. But yeah. Basically, once he died, he had a huge archive of work that was left to his niece, This archive remained in the family for over a century until 1872, when his descendant, Isaac Newton Wallop, Mm. donated his writings to Trinity College. Cambridge was grateful, but kept only the mathematical and scientific papers and returned Newton's, quote, more controversial writings on alchemy, theology, and philosophy. That's bizarre. And, like, why wouldn't you want right? this from a historical perspective? Even if, yeah, okay, right? yeah, we know alchemy's not real, but Newton wrote this. Like, that feels like something they would want to hold on to. Right, and especially theology and philosophy, which, you know, are definitely not the best bedfellows with, like, science and math, but to jettison that from university archives seems like a gross over site, but they were sold off in 1936 to private collectors. So they're estimated to fetch about 80 to $120,000 as part of its online only Essential Genius 10 Important Manuscripts sale. (laughs) It runs until uh, the 10th of June. So I guess if you didn't already bid, you are out of luck because that's when we're recording this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You missed the boat to get the uh, personal instructions on how to cure the plague. See, actually, I try to keep an open mind about stuff and I can see a particular set of circumstances where it might actually help in the sense that some plagues were bacterial, right? Mm -hmm. And any living organism has gut flora in their stomach. And so in theory, you could have some sort of probiotic sludge that's coming out of this frog and possibly just, you know, fighting bacteria with bacteria. It could, in maybe some instances, be able to fight back some bacterial infection, possibly even the plague. I'm not saying that we need to bust the frogs out. uh, And it's certainly (laughs) it's not going to work with COVID because that's a virus. It's a totally different kind of organism. But I feel like there is possibly some some level of evidence that, yes, the uh, vomit of a toad could perhaps fight off some bouts of the plague. Absolutely. Look, <laughs> if we live in a day and age where fecal transplants are a thing, yeah, absolutely. why not look at the toads? Yeah, you know? yeah I think so. I, I feel like there's probably a better way to get them to vomit than to hang them upside down until they're dead. <laughs> I think possibly if, if modern science has given us anything, it's a way to make animals vomit without killing them, I think. Oh, you just, oh, I mean, just, you know, oh. put, a, put a slasher movie in front of them. Like, do something that just sort of grosses them out. Yeah, take them on a roller coaster. You know, you show them a good time at Six Flags or Disneyland when those things open again and you know maybe maybe you tickle them until they just can't take anymore little like, itty bitty frog coasters like. <laughs> oh bless if we're working on bees in space we can work on uh, frogs on roller coasters i think this is a that's very right valid form of study <laughs> why not that's, that's right. the question why not exactly <laughs> next link next, next link This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled Miraculous Mosquito Hack Cuts Dengue by 77%. Yeah. Yeah. So the World Mosquito Program team says it could be a solution to a virus that has gone around the world. And a few people had heard of dengue 50 years ago, but it's been a relentless slow burn pandemic and cases have increased dramatically. In 1970, only nine countries had faced severe dengue outbreaks, and now there are up to 400 million infections a year. Ooh, That's wow. a lot. Yeah. 
Dengue is commonly known as breakbone fever because it causes severe pain in muscles and bones and explosive outbreaks can overwhelm hospitals. So the trial used mosquitoes infected with Wolbachia bacteria. One of the researchers, Dr. Katie Anders, describes them as naturally miraculous. Wolbachia does not harm the mosquito, but it camps out in the same parts of the body that the dengue virus needs to get into. And the bacteria compete for resources and make it much harder for dengue virus to replicate, so the mosquito is less likely to cause an infection when it bites again. Nice. Hmm. The trial used 5 million mosquito eggs infected with Wolbachia. There's a really nice photo on this article of just like, basically they look like drink cups you'd get from Starbucks or something, the plastic ones, but they're just filled with mosquitoes and some (gasps) greenish swampy yellow water at the bottom. (laughs) Yeah, it's real gnarly. And I was like, this is very important work, but also... That's right. right. Yeah, someone else can do it. (laughs) Yeah. So... Eggs were placed in buckets of water in the city every two weeks, and the process of building up an infected population of mosquitoes took nine months. Hmm. And Yogyakarta was split into 24 zones, and the mosquitoes were released in only half of them. The results published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed a 77% reduction in cases and an 86% reduction in people needing hospital care. And this technique has been so successful, the mosquitoes have been released across the whole city, and the project is moving to surround the areas with the aim of eradicating dengue in the region. Wolbachia are also spectacularly manipulative and can alter the fertility of their host to ensure they're passed on to the next generation of mosquitoes. So Mm. this means once Wolbachia has been established, it should stick around for a long time and continue to protect against dengue infection. And this is in sharp contrast to other control methods, such as insecticides or Mm -hmm. releasing large numbers of sterile male mosquitoes that need to be kept up in order to suppress the bloodsuckers. Dr. Uderia Amelia, the head of disease prevention in Yogyakarta City, said, We are delighted with the outcome of this trial. We hope this method can be further expanded in all cities in Indonesia. And finally, David Hamer, a professor of global health and medicine at Boston University, said the method had exciting potential for other diseases such as Zika, yellow fever, and chikungunya, which is also spread by mosquito bites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that, like you said, the insecticides have never really been effective because there is this ecological niche for mosquitoes. And Mm -hmm. so when you kill some, you just end up with the others giving birth to more. So you have to actually Mm -hmm. keep the mosquitoes. And then, of course, there's always the risk that the bacteria is going to mutate. And now we've created Mm. some sort of monster that gives us some other horrible disease. But that's down the road. Let's let future us deal with that. I mean, (laughs) this current solution seems great. Yeah. No, dengue fever is not a good thing. (laughs) So if we can stop it. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, some of us are starting to get vaccinated, at Mm -hmm. least here in the U.S. However, that being said, some cases are still going up. We still need to be somewhat vigilant. And Mm -hmm. if you need a little bit of a reminder about why you don't want to catch (laughs) COVID, from a couple of articles that kind of go together, SciTech Daily is reporting that some research evidence is showing a COVID link to hearing loss, tinnitus, and vertigo. Um, I remember reading a headline the other day about, I think it was the owner of the Texas Roadhouse steak restaurants Uh who allegedly 
recently committed suicide because after getting infected with COVID, his tinnitus was essentially driving him crazy. So they found 56 studies that identified an association between COVID-19 and auditory and vestibular problems. However, there's a big caveat here. Uh, They did publish their findings in the International Journal of Audiology, if you really want to dive into it. But the team who followed up the review carried out a year ago described the quality of studies as fair. And this is because their data primarily used self-reported questionnaires Mm -hmm. or medical records to obtain COVID-related symptoms rather than more scientifically reliable hearing tests. So Mm -hmm. this is very early. We still need to do some carefully conducted clinical and diagnostic study to understand long-term effects of COVID on the auditory system. But this is nothing new in terms of viruses causing hearing loss. So measles, mumps, and meningitis can cause hearing loss. Another reason to make sure to stay up on the rest of your vaccinations. But it's not just the hearing sense, it's also the smell sense. So The Atlantic has a longer article titled, You Recovered from COVID-19. Now your coffee smells like sewage. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) So this article goes into Ruby Martinez, who her senses of smell and taste have started to come back, but in really weird ways. So for two weeks, all she could smell was phantom smoke. Hmm. And then later she was able to smell her boyfriend's cologne, but it had this really sickening chemical odor. Hmm. And then the hand soap where she worked, which used to smell generically fruity, but now smells exactly and eerily like a Burger King Whopper. She (laughs) apparently used to love Whoppers, but now can't stand the smell of the soap because she's like, she's quoted as saying, I know, what the heck? Why can't it be something good? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nothing comes out smelling like gardenias by magic. Why is it? Yeah. Burger King Whopper is not the odor you want on your hands. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And apparently some supposed cures for smell loss, like eating a charred orange or poking your forehead while getting flicked in the back of the head. (laughs) Just to name a couple of examples that have gone viral on TikTok. And we'd like to remind you, TikTok is not a scientific (laughs) journal. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds very much like a sibling was just like, no, no, this will fix it. Let me poke you in the back of the head for an hour. I promise it will get better. But there is something that is scientifically proven as an intervention for this kind of smell loss, and it's called smell training. Hmm. It really started in 2009. Thomas Hummel, an ear, nose, and throat doctor at the University of Dresden, began asking 40 people with anosmia to smell four essential oils. They used rose, lemon, eucalyptus, and clove, and they would have them do this twice a day for 10 seconds each. And after 12 weeks, the volunteers who adhered to the smell training regained some of their smell, but those in a control group did not. Hmm. But not everyone who did the smell training improved And those who did improve didn't necessarily fully recover. So it's not like a wonder drug, but it does help to increase function faster. So it's less like a cure than it is like physical therapy for the nose. Right. So since then, they've been testing variations of the smell training protocol. They're using more complex scents Hmm. and then adding a picture of an object with the appropriate scent. Unfortunately, none of these variations have improved much on the original. So a lot of people who do encounter smell training do so through a charity in the UK that has the most delightful name. It's called Absent. (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine how that's spelled. Yes, yes. Um, The founder, Chrissy Kelly, lost her sense of smell for the first time after a viral infection in 2012. And when her doctor suggested smell training, she had very little useful information. 
studies that existed had been written for other scientists, not patients.、Mm. So she began writing down her own tips, like putting drops of an essential oil in a small jar so the scent can bloom, kind of like wine in a wine glass.、Mm. And she had started a Facebook group where people could connect. Obviously, when COVID began, membership in the group、right. took off. She could almost track the global spread of COVID based on the locations of new members. And so eventually, she created another group specifically for COVID patients, which now has about twenty-five thousand members. Wow! It goes on a little bit more in terms of like, why is it that we're smelling something that's just so disgusting after we've lost our sense of smell? It might be because of the way that infection of support cells in the olfactory systems work. Apparently, humans only have four hundred distinct smell receptors, but we're able to distinguish around one trillion different odors, and that's、wow. because a single molecule can bind to multiple smell receptors, and one recognizable scent can be made up of hundreds of different molecules that together activate a unique combination of receptors.、Right. So, if some receptors are missing or miswired. The brain might get a scrambled signal that results in parosmia, and so one of the hypotheses here is that the brain is interpreting unfamiliar scrambled signals as danger. Right? So, yeah, why yeah. should something you've never smelled before be pleasant? Because in our evolutionary history, smells like smoke or rot. Are usually a warning sign. Yeah, so it's basically telling you, I don't know what this is, but let's assume it's bad. Exactly, danger, danger, unknown, get away.、Mm-hmm. But. When you think about babies, they don't turn their heads away from foul odors, right? Their diapers do not disgust them. Like you might、right. be changing a diaper, and you, as the adult, are like, "Ugh!" But the baby's like, "I'm having a wonderful time." Yeah, like whatever. <laughs> so the aversion to certain smells might be learned over a lifetime, but once we've learned it, the reaction、mm. is super, super strong. So,、yeah. if you're curious to learn more, it's a really good in-depth article. But let it serve as a warning to approach the reopening of the world once you're vaccinated with a grain of salt, shall we say? Yeah. Well, and there's more things that can happen between it killed me or it didn't kill me. Like there are other <laughs> side effects you may not appreciate if you get infected. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from ScienceNorway.no, and it is titled. How dirty and stinky were medieval cities? Oh, I'm gonna guess pretty. I mean, yeah, very pretty, but right, right. very. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So people in the Middle Ages were aware that a putrid urban environment was unhealthy, actually, and according to Norwegian researchers, they actually did take steps to confront the problem. Like a lot of us have this vision of medieval times, especially the Dark Ages, is just a lot of really nasty stuff everywhere in the middle of cities, and nobody doing anything about, it, and also like being immune to it. But the research shows that they did actually care and could smell with their noses the、right. things that was <laughs> the stuff that was around them. What is that? That's like nose blind, isn't that that thing that they've made up for commercials that you just you don't smell it anymore? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, a historian and professor at the University of Stavanger, Dolly Jorgensen, has researched waste disposal in Scandinavian and Northern European medieval cities. And she says that in a time before underground sewage systems, a medieval city with a population of ten thousand people typically produced nine hundred thousand liters of excrement <laughs> and nearly three million liters of urine、Whoa. annually. It sounds like they were well hydrated, at least. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was all like wine and ale back then, right? Because a lot of water was suspect, right? So、That's、you had、true. a lot of drunk stink. Mmm. <laughs> 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 and added to that were the copious amounts of dung from livestock that were kept、mm-hmm. in the cities, from pigs, horses, cows, and poultry. 
An episode of the 2011 BBC TV documentary Filthy Cities actually described the streets of London in the 1300s and described them as being ankle deep in a putrid mix of wet mud, rotten fish, garbage, entrails, and animal dung, and that people would dump their own eliminations into the street or just slosh it out the window. So the researchers have been doing some work to figure out how true was that actually. Mm -hmm. So the medieval period in Norway began in the late Viking Age, which lasted lasted around the year 1050 until the 1500s, mm-hmm. and that's when the first Norwegian cities that exist today were founded. At the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, Axel Christofferson, a professor in historical archaeology, leads a research project on health and hygiene in Trondheim in the Middle Ages. In this research project, Christofferson wanted to know how did citizens in medieval cities relate to dreadful diseases. He says that it was thought that they had no knowledge of how to deal with them. But research, partly in England, shows us to be wrong. And the goal is to study how health evolves from being a private affair, as it was, to becoming a public responsibility. Yep. Interestingly, we've shifted in the other direction since then, mm-hmm. with recent years, but that's <laughs> not included in the article. Uh, <laughs> So Dolly Jorgensen is among those who've discovered that the medieval townspeople took steps in this direction and that hygiene was actually considered an important aspect of society. Dung and excrement wasn't the only filth that would pile up in these cities. There were also waste products of various trades like tanneries and textile productions. But the worst were the slaughterhouses. You know, intestines and heads had to be thrown somewhere. Right. (laughs) So complaints about butchers are actually found in older written sources from England. Like, for instance, in 1371, the city council in York forbid butchers from discarding waste products in the river near a monastery. So the butchers, being uh, intrepid entrepreneurs that they are, started (laughs) throwing intestinal and bloody waste near their walls and gates at another spot in the River Ooze. It's really pronounced (laughs) that way. (laughs) They basically said, oh, this river is bad. Okay, we'll pick a different river. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then the friars complained that the people of the city who used to attend their church were withdrawing themselves because of the stench and the horrible sights. They also feared that sickness and manifold other harm would result from this population, so the king decreed against the throwing of waste in the vicinity of the monks. Butchers solved that by dumping animal remnants in a graveyard, and bones were scattered around and attracted hungry dogs and birds. Oh, gosh. I I mean, they got fed, you know. (laughs) Wait, so if you're putting a bunch of, like, bones for animals and you're doing it in a graveyard, wasn't it possible that they could, like, unearth dead people? Bodies? I mean... Probably. Accidentally? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, you know, overzealous dogs, but I get the feeling that these butchers weren't exactly trying to dig graves for their refuse, right? Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't sound like they were burying them at all. They were just like, oh, here's a place that's already smelly, so we'll dump them there. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. So in 1284, for example, regulations were ruled out, like King Eric Magnuson prohibited people from throwing their garbage and dung from the quays in Bergen. And in Trondheim, they were banned from tossing wastes from the tanning process into the river Nedelva. Despite all these repugnant examples, Dolly Jorgensen does think that medieval cities were better than reputed. She said that there's this notion that medieval folks were ignorant, that they didn't realize that they could fall ill, and they just threw waste anywhere. But that's not the impression she reached after researching sanitation. She says that the complaints can really be interpreted to show that people didn't accept living in this pigsty. And the foundations of these myths were actually made at a time when Victorian cities were idealized as their opposites, (laughs) uh, which is now being challenged by researchers. 
In Trondheim, an entire city block has been excavated, which show that the streets were actually divided down the middle. One explanation being that they wanted to clearly mark off the individual resident's responsibility for cleaning and maintenance. Hmm. And they can see that there was actually a difference in how seriously various neighbors shouldered this responsibility, and some were diligently tidy and others were not. And the oldest written Norwegian ordinance about cleaning operations they could find comes from 1276 and stipulates that the public has to keep the streets clear and free of goods during the Christmas holidays. And the archaeological material shows that the rules were systemized and linked to each property facing the street. So it was probably property owners' individual duty to obey these ordinances. And they weren't dwelling just in direct exposure to the street, but were often rather recessed back at their farmhouses. And privies would be placed at the very rear of the properties or in a compartment or closet in the house. So there was actually this sense of, you know, hey, you should go do your business away just from the... Right. They were making an effort, at least. Exactly. And despite that effort, a lot of waste would still end up on the ground. (laughs) Archaeologists actually found meter-deep cultural layers of trash from medieval times. And sources actually tell us that in the Middle Ages, it was common to use trash as fill or a foundation when Mm. constructing buildings or making a new street. So there are actually sources showing that people were paid to bring their discards to help make a foundation. Hmm. Archaeologists do see that the dumping of trash lessened after 1350, uh, one big cause being the Black Death. Nothing like a good old-fashioned plague to make you start to be a little more diligent about cleaning. Exactly. (laughs) And to reduce the overall amount of waste being generated by those who are alive. That's right. You're going to have half as much feces being created when everybody's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the sanitation rules really kicked in around the 1400s. Like, there's evidence of tax being collected to fund street sweepers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also had the privy and latrine cleaners who collected waste on a regular schedule. And animal dung and other waste had to be hauled off to dumps or at least somewhere outside of town. Piling up waste in the streets was prohibited. And some cities had rules for when butchers were to cart off their waste. And they also could have had a daily deadline when fishmongers had to clean away their mess from the street. Hmm. So you had a lot of evidence of this sort of stuff going on. And... There actually were measures being taken to combat what they called miasmas or evil air. So Mm -hmm. they did have an understanding of disease in the Middle Ages that had passed down from antiquity, which actually wasn't too far off, besides that they thought that miasmas could result from natural phenomena like earthquakes or lightning. Hmm. That would suck. But (laughs) I mean, they got it. They just didn't understand why. But they did understand, like, we're leaving all this poop everywhere and it's making us sick. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And they did draw a connection between stench and disease, which probably conformed to their ideas about miasmas as well. In April 1371, the English king expressed strong apprehensions about how much waste disposal butchers were doing in London. Uh, I like to imagine that he could smell it from his castle. <laughs> you were. You start inconveniencing the rich people and all of a sudden the laws change. Yeah, yep. exactly. I mean, it still sounds like they had some pretty real issues, but it's right. nice to know that they weren't just an entirely different species of human that just wasn't using their noses for like 400 years. Right. Well, and it's, it's nice to know that even people... In in ancient times hated their neighbors. Like they all had that one jerk yeah. on the block <laughs> not doing the right thing. Yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, since we're entering a new year, uh, it's time for a little bit of optimism. The Guardian oh, is, <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of couched in the lens of history, like we've been talking about, but The Guardian mm-hmm. has an epidemiologist who's looking to the past to predict a second post pandemic 
roaring 20s. So we know the stats. It's been really horrible. We're still in the middle of it. But Yale professor and social epidemiologist Dr. Nicholas Christakis is telling us in a new book called Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live, which seems a little early to publish, but regardless, um, he sees a pattern. He got that one out quick. He sure did. I mean, (laughs) I know publication through Kindle is shortening the time span of publication, but it just seems a little (laughs) premature. But anyway, one of the patterns he's seeing is that what's happening to us may seem to so many people to be really alien and unnatural, but plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us in this generation, Mm -hmm. right? And so his expertise is in how our behaviors influence contagion in society. So here's the comfort that might be taken in his observations of disease over millennia. Plagues and pandemics end. They always end. (laughs) Sure, yeah. They even ended before we had vaccines to respond to them. And how we react to these germs through things like social distancing determines the force with which they hit our society. This may come across as a little no-duh to some of our listeners, but (laughs) uh, it's one of the chief thesis arguments in his books. But knowing that pandemics and plagues end, once they end, there's usually a period in which people seek out extensive social interaction and which he predicts will be a second roaring 20s just as after we had the 1918 flu pandemic. So during epidemics, he notes, you get increases in religiosity, people becoming more (laughs) abstentious, they save money, they get more risk averse. And we're seeing all of that now, just as we have for hundreds of years during epidemics. And economies of ancient civilizations also collapsed in times of disease. Maybe a no-duh, but a lot of people think that it's the actions of our government that are causing the economy to slow, he notes. Economies collapsed even in ancient times when plagues happened, even when there was no government saying, close the schools and close right. the restaurants. Like, right. that still happened, you guys. <laughs> And he notes that this future will not come until society has had time to distribute the vaccine, probably through 2021, and had time to recover from the socioeconomic devastation it has wrought, which will probably be through 2023. So manage your expectations according to this one guy's predictions here. But the vision he lays out for 2024 and beyond is one filled with experiences pined for in isolation. Mm. We're talking about packed stadiums, crowded nightclubs. And this is what made my heart sore. Flourishing arts. I cannot wait to get back Mm -hmm. to the theater and not just performing, Mm -hmm. but seeing live theater. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. So he Mm -hmm. predicts that in 2024, all of those pandemic trends are going to get reversed. People will, as he put it, relentlessly seek out social interactions. (laughs) And that could include sexual licentiousness, liberal spending Mm. and a reverse of religiosity. We've got a light at the end of the tunnel here, if history is any guide, but the coming year is really going to test the world's endurance in continuing to social distance, hand wash, wear masks. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it it sounds like basically what he's saying is like, we're going to get the big bump at the end. It's just a question of how fast can we get to the end? That's right. Delayed gratification. It's one of the things that we as humans are historically bad at, but that always (laughs) is proven to pay yields and dividends far beyond whatever little things you're snatching or grabbing at today to get. That's right. It's a worldwide marshmallow test all at the same time. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you like our podcast and want to buy us a cup of NyQuil, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.